Hello, and welcome back to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas. And every week, I'm going to watch one of the 94 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture, and I'm going to tell you exactly what I think of them. I follow the same template every week. So if you're new here, it's the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it, what's it all about. And I also answer three important questions. One, does it stand the test of time? Two, is it Oscar worthy? Three, should you watch it? Or does it seem like it would be less painful to be hit by a speeding bus? As a friendly warning, along with my honest assessment of these movies, you're also going to get my hot takes on many current events. I rant about the things that irritate me, and I mix it all with a heaping dose of adult language. So please be sure you listen with caution. Around here, it's all about fussing and cussing. So if that ain't your thing, you want to pick another podcast. Before we begin, I would like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar related. And with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is Argo. It was released October 12th of 2012. It is directed by Ben Affleck. It stars Ben Affleck, Brian Cranston, Alan Arkin, John Goodman, plus about 20 other fantastic actors in smaller roles, such as Kyle Chandler and Victor Garber, Clea Duvall, Tate Donovan, Chris Messina. Seriously, a ton of people you're going to recognize. It was nominated for a total of seven Oscars, and it won three of them. It won for Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Film Editing. If you want to watch it, it can be found on HBO Max or Apple TV if you have a subscription. You can also pay $3.99 to watch it on Amazon Prime or Vudu. So what is it about? Well, let me begin by telling you this is based on a true story. You're not going to want to believe me after you hear all the details, but seriously, this strange series of events really did happen. Of course, there are some Hollywood liberties that have been taken to ramp up the drama, but the foundation of this story is factual. It is set in 1979. On November 4th of that year, the U.S. Embassy in Tehran was stormed by Iranian Islamists in retaliation to President Jimmy Carter giving asylum in the U.S. to the former Shah of Iran. The Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, had been a dictator put in place in 1953 by Western powers. So he was the guy that we chose. But by 1978, there was growing political unrest, which was snowballing into a popular revolution. The Shah left Iran in January of 1979 for exile, and the Iranians were desperate to get him back. They wanted him to stand trial for crimes he is said to have committed against his own citizens. But the Shah was dying of cancer, so the U.S. felt it was more of a humanitarian cause and allowed him to stay in the United States for medical treatments. As an angry mob is trying to break through the gates and scale the walls of the U.S. Embassy, The higher-ranking embassy staff are yelling orders to shred and burn every important document and destroy all the computers and other communication devices 
to keep them from falling into enemy hands. They know they're about to be overrun and they're trying desperately to get police help. There is embassy security in the form of a handful of American soldiers, but they're incredibly outnumbered. And they know if they were to use lethal force, if they were to shoot even one of these revolutionaries, every one of the innocent people in the building will end up being killed. So while it's quite scary for the Americans working in the embassy, imagine the 15 or so Iranian citizens who were in the building trying to secure visas to get out of the country and travel to the United States. If any of them are spotted, they will not get the luxury of being taken hostage. They will be killed on sight. The mob succeeds in taking over the U.S. Embassy and a large number of U.S. diplomats and embassy staff are taken hostage. I say a large number because I believe the movie states that there are like 66 hostages, but other sources say 52. I'm not sure if the 66 might have included non-Americans who were at the embassy at the time of the takeover, but somewhere between 52 and 66 humans were blindfolded and forced at gunpoint into the dark basement of the embassy and held captive for a very long time. In the middle of the takeover crisis, six Americans avoided being captured and they escaped the building. They happened to be working in the only section of the embassy that had an exit leading directly to the street. So they run out with a group of Iranian visa seekers and disappear into the crowded streets of Tehran. They end up in the home of the Canadian ambassador, Ken Taylor. He's played by Victor Garber, who agrees to secretly provide them shelter. The heavily armed Iranian revolutionaries have made it crystal clear. They will only release the hostages after the U.S. sends the Shah back to Iran for trial. Negotiations have stalled and neither side is willing to cave. It's now been 69 days and the hostages are no closer to being released. Since no one on the Iranian side is aware that six Americans have escaped the embassy, the U.S. State Department begins to explore options on how to exfiltrate the six out of Tehran. They are now codenamed the House Guests. This operation becomes more urgent, at least according to the movie, for two reasons. One, the Canadian government is starting to get pushy, keeping them secretly housed in the ambassador's home for nearly 10 weeks is becoming far too risky for the Canadians. And two, the State Department realizes that some idiot working in the U.S. Embassy had created a mug book, which is basically an employee roster complete with photos of every American that was working at the embassy that day. Although the book was shredded just prior to the takeover, (laughs) the Iranian Revolutionary Guard has brought in sweatshop kids who spend hours every day trying to reassemble the shredded photos. It won't take long before they get all the documents restored and then realize they're six Americans short. The fear is the guard will then go door to door until they're found and they will be tortured and killed, along with anyone who has been helping to shelter them. The operation is under the State Department's jurisdiction, but the CIA has agents who are experts at getting Americans exfiltrated from foreign hostile situations. So a man by the name of Tony Mendez is called in to consult with state. Tony is played in the movie by Ben Affleck. There are a number of options that the State Department is considering to get these six people out. And we see in rapid succession how Tony shoots down all of them, right? Like he's like, nope, nope, that one won't work. Nope, that one won't work. But to be honest, Tony doesn't have a better solution, at least not yet. 
It's not until later when Tony is watching Battle for the Planet of the Apes when he gets this crazy idea. The six house guests will pretend to be a Canadian film crew who were in Iran scouting exotic locations for a science fiction film. It sounds absolutely bonkers, but sometimes the really far out ideas are the ones that work. There's a point where Tony's boss, Jack O'Donnell, played by Brian Cranston, goes before the head of the CIA and the Secretary of State and basically admits, this idea is the least bad of the bad ideas, but they'll find a way to make it work. So the U.S. government sanctions a fake movie operation to rescue six Americans from Iran. That is the truth. Tony's first step is to contact John Chambers, who had previously helped the CIA in other missions. If you don't know who he is, he's an award-winning makeup artist who was known for creating groundbreaking prosthetic work in movies like Star Trek and Planet of the Apes. In the movie, John Chambers is perfectly played by John Goodman. Chambers puts Tony in touch with a producer named Lester Siegel, and he's played by Alan Arkin, who steals every scene that he's in. And Lester is intrigued by the idea of setting up a fake movie to help rescue the six Americans. He's all in. Together, the three of them set up a phony production company, renting an office, putting in phone lines, and ordering business cards. Who knew it was so easy to start a production company? They read dozens of scripts until they come across the perfect one. It's called Argo, a science fantasy adventure. It was styled after Star Wars, which was so popular at the time. They secure the rights to the script, but they still feel like they're missing something. They need to convince the world that this is a real movie in order to lend credibility to the mission. A movie poster and some storyboards simply won't be enough, and six people's lives are on the line. So who do you turn to as an unwitting accomplice when you need news to spread far and wide? Well, the press, of course. So Lester comes up with this great plan. He stages a public table reading of the script with actors in costume so they can make a big spectacle of it. They take out a full-page ad in Variety, and of course, sci-fi fans come out of the woodwork. It's like a mini Comic-Con, a bunch of people walking around in full makeup and space-age costumes with a ballroom full of excited fans anxious to get their first glimpse of what they believe could be the next Star Wars. It's an incredible ruse, and they pull it off flawlessly. Pretty soon, the whole town is buzzing about this incredible new movie called Argo, and it doesn't take long for a convincing cover story to take hold. Hollywood word of mouth is a powerful tool. It's basically the 1979 version of going viral. Now that they have a really solid cover story, it's time for Tony to head to Iran using the alias of Kevin Harkin, the associate producer of Argo. He'll provide the six house guests with Canadian passports and fake identities. Going forward, they will be known as the director, the screenwriter, the cameraman, and other essential crew that would plausibly be part of a location scouting trip. It doesn't take long for Tony to realize there's going to be a couple of challenges. The most difficult to overcome is the immigration paperwork. Upon arrival in Iran, every visitor is given an immigration form. It's a two-part kind of carbon copy type thing. The original is kept with the immigration officials, and the traveler gets the duplicate copy. When anyone leaves Iran, they must submit their copy upon departure, and it has to be matched with the original counterpart at immigration before they're cleared to leave. The six house guests didn't originally arrive as visitors, so they wouldn't have completed this form. 
Tony knows he can forge what would be the visitor copy, but there will be no matching copy on file with immigration, and this could trip them up. The second issue is the political difficulties Tony will face. His first step is to have on record his application for a film permit with the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance. There's some required ring kissing, and the officials seem particularly keen on making him jump through some hoops. In an attempt to really test his tenacity, they insist he takes the film crew to the very crowded Grand Bazaar in the middle of Tehran, at a time when Iranian hostilities toward Westerners are particularly high. To pull this off, the six will need to know their fake identities inside and out, with very little time to rehearse. If you aren't part of the movie industry, you know absolutely nothing about it. How on earth are you supposed to fake it well enough to convince hostile, possibly even armed people who were in your face asking questions about your make-believe movie? A couple of the house guests are really hesitant. They know they are risking their lives if they're caught out in public, much less in the middle of the Grand Bazaar. If one person suspects they are Americans, they know they will never make it out alive. Tony stresses to them the importance of this test run. If they can get through this, they will be prepared to handle the airport when the time comes. Meanwhile, back in the States, the White House and Pentagon have been working on another option. This one is a military rescue. And the night before Tony is supposed to leave Iran with the house guests, he is told the movie mission has been called off. The U.S. military is going to storm the embassy and end the standoff. Chambers and Lester are contacted by the CIA and told to close the Hollywood production office. The mission is over. The airline reservations for the six house guests from Tehran to Zurich are canceled, and Tony is told to abort, get out before the military arrives, or he may not get out at all. But this doesn't sit well with Tony. He promised these people he would get them out, and he's not going to leave them behind. He makes the decision to go rogue and proceed with the Argo plan anyway. He calls his boss back in D.C. and tells him he'd better reactivate the mission because Tony's getting on a plane with these six people and nothing is going to fucking stop him. This sets in motion the last 25 minutes of the film, which end up being far more intense than the real-life escape actually was. The now seven Americans arrive at the airport and discover there are no flight reservations. The original flights were canceled, so we see the CIA guys in D.C. scrambling to get approval to book new ones as our nervous passengers are standing at the ticket counter. Next, they have to bluff their way through immigration, where their paperwork doesn't match. One of them is able to provide the letter from the Ministry of Culture, the approval that Tony received when he first arrived. So with that, they are cleared to pass through. Then they are pulled out of the boarding line by heavily armed Revolutionary Guard members and questioned about their identity. Luckily, one of the house guests speaks Farsi well enough, and he takes over, telling the guard all about Argo, showing them the storyboard, and convinces them it's a real film. A call is placed to the phone number on the business card that Tony provides, and as luck would have it, John Chambers answers the phone at the fake production company back in L.A. He tells the Iranian commander on the phone that associate producer Kevin Harkin is on a location scout in the Middle East, and he can't come to the phone. They are able to board the plane just in the nick of time. As it heads down the runway, the reassembled photos of the six house guests arrive at the airport, and the commander realizes they match the people he's just let escape. Sorry, Charlie, you just got bested by Operation Argo. The Iran hostage crisis ended on January 20th, 1981, when all the remaining hostages were released. 
they spent a total of 444 days in captivity. Question one, does Argo stand the test of time? Yes. And I I actually think it's more relevant now, or at least a little more relatable to us in 2023, now that we've recently witnessed what happened in Benghazi. I think we all understand more clearly now how vulnerable the U.S. embassies can be if they are in hostile foreign countries, or we've done something to politically piss off people who are usually our allies. I think it's really admirable of U.S. citizens to accept these diplomatic employment opportunities, knowing overseas embassies could be an attractive target for people who wish to harm Americans. The movie itself is a very accurate depiction of life in 1979. The clothes, the hair, the cars, the music, everyone being able to smoke everywhere they went, even on airplanes. It's all very realistic. This is another one on the Oscar movie list that uses a lot of archival news footage. I think it's mentioned that there were 74 American journalists given press credentials to cover the hostage situation live from Tehran. So there was a lot of reporting from the scene, which kept Americans well-informed and glued to their TVs for nightly news updates. It's clear the filmmakers used this to their advantage as there were many recreated scenes that were almost identical to the actual footage and photographs that we've all seen throughout history. There were a number of changes made for the film. For example, the six house guests were actually on the run for six days before they ended up being sheltered by the Canadians. And... They weren't all housed together. They were split amongst the Taylor's home and that of another Canadian, John Sheardon, and his wife, Zena. But these changes help make it all flow better. I don't think it was anyone's intent to minimalize the role of the Canadians, but Hollywood needs to sell movie tickets, and sometimes you have to change some details to make it more palatable for the audience. Question two, is it Oscar-worthy? Yes, in fact, I think this is just the type of movie that Academy members love to vote for, an intense political drama based on real events, particularly events that happened in their lifetimes. It's a retelling of something they lived through and probably very vividly remember. The other nominees that year were Beasts of the Southern Wild, Amour, Django Unchained, Les Miserables, Life of Pi, Lincoln, Silver Linings Playbook, and Zero Dark Thirty. In more recent years, the Best Picture category has been expanded to include up to 10 nominees. So I actually think the path to winning is a lot tougher than it used to be. Let me unpack this a little bit because there are a few here that probably gave Argo a run for its money. In my opinion, Silver Linings Playbook, Lincoln, and Zero Dark Thirty were probably the strongest contenders. Silver Linings Playbook was a creative, clever story with a dynamite cast. It was well-received, and I'm sure it was high on the list for many voters. My guess, it was probably a close second place. Lincoln and Zero Dark Thirty had the same thing Argo had going for it. They are all intense political dramas based on real events. These are often among the very best movies that we get to see. Think of All the President's Men, Frost Nixon, JFK, The Insider, Michael Clayton, Bridge of Spies, Syriana, the list goes on and on. It seems like we have a bumper crop of dramatic and dangerous historical shit that everyone wants to make movies about. I think a movie like this gets nominated pretty much every year. I can't help but wonder if the Academy was giving Ben Affleck a little bit of maybe overdue credit. Both he and George Clooney were the producers of Argo and thus collected the Oscar for the best picture. Let me talk about Ben Affleck for a minute because he's a real enigma. 
personally, I'm not sure he does really anything for me as an actor. Well, actually, hold on a minute. Let me say that different. I think what I mean to say is that I'm not sure he gives great acting performances unless the movie he's acting in is also one that he has either written, directed, or produced. I find that most often, if he's just there to act, he'll dial it in. But if it's his movie, if he's got skin in the game, then it's a different story. If you put Ben Affleck behind the scenes, when he's the writer, the director, or the producer, you're going to get a great fucking movie, period. This guy is talented. If you don't believe me, go watch Gone Baby Gone or The Town. Both of those are these gritty South Boston-based crime dramas that are his wheelhouse. And he also co-wrote Goodwill Hunting, which I think is an exceptional script. When he's in a film solely as an actor, it just doesn't resonate with me. To be honest, I think he's a brilliant filmmaker trapped in the body of a gorgeous creature that people keep throwing in front of the camera by mistake. He's been in like 50 movies, and I think that Gone Girl, State of Play, and maybe The Accountant are the only true acting performances where I found him to be impressive. No, I haven't seen him as Batman, so I can't comment on that. But there's like 35 other movies where he's just crap. My guess is that the acting gigs are what actually pays his bills and allow him the financial freedom to make really great movies every three to five years. But now that he has a very wealthy wife, maybe he can retire from acting. Argo also won an Oscar for the Best Adapted Screenplay, which was based on the book that Tony Mendez wrote called The Master of Disguise. Question three, should you watch it? Yes, I I think it's really worth a couple hours of your time. The supporting cast is phenomenal. There are so many recognizable character actors. You're going to spend half the movie going, oh, hey, that's that guy from that thing. Oh, yeah, I like him. Like every five minutes, there's someone new on the screen that was in something else that you loved and you can't quite place them, but you know you loved them. The combination of Alan Arkin and John Goodman as the two Hollywood guys is just perfect. Every time I see Alan Arkin on screen, I can't help but think he's just ad-libbing the entire thing because his characters are exactly what I imagine him to be like in real life. The script is intense and dramatic, but it's also very funny. There's this great moment where Alan Arkin's character is at the famous sci-fi Comic-Con table reading event that he planned, and he's asked about the title of the movie and what it means. And his response is, Argo, fuck yourself. And from that point on, John, Tony, and Lester use this kind of as their fun salute to each other. So it becomes the catchphrase for the rest of the movie. When you least expect it, someone says, Argo, fuck yourself. As you're watching it, you're going to think the entire story is just batshit crazy and you can't believe this actually happened, but it did. And that's a good reason to watch it because it's important that you know how it all ended. In real life, the six house guests were rescued on day 87, but the credit was given to the Canadians out of fear that the remaining hostages would be in greater danger if it was discovered that the CIA and the U.S. State Department participated in the operation. And it's worth noting that all six of the house guests returned to the U.S. Foreign Service after their ordeal in Iran. They went right back to work. Tony Mendez was awarded the Intelligence Star, but since the op was classified, he didn't get to keep it, and no one was allowed to know he'd actually earned it. In 1997, it was returned to him after the Argo operation was declassified by President Clinton. 
Oscar-winning makeup artist John Chambers was awarded the CIA's Intelligence Medal, which is its highest civilian honor. That just makes me want to cry. In 1981, Canadian Ambassador Ken Taylor was presented with the Congressional Gold Medal by President Reagan. After his death, the Washington Post described Taylor as the main hero of the Iran hostage escape. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 14 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. It's really helpful if you like and follow the show, or even post a review. That is the best way to help Cinema Sunday reach a wider audience. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of freemusicarchives.org. And the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio. And if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations. So please be generous. Thanks and see you next week.